Welcome to The Five Things, This Week in Social. Typically on this show, we will deep dive into the headlines from social, but this week we are going to flex what it means to be social and have a conversation around Women's History Month as we celebrate it here at Gray. Joining us today and hosting the conversation is Gray's Esty Wasner, a brand planner and panelist on The Five Things. So without further ado, here's Esty. Thank you, Joey. And welcome to this week's fabulous special edition episode, A Few Good Women, telling the stories of unsung women who made a big impact on history. We are proud to be acknowledging and celebrating Women's History Month this March. And throughout the month, we at Gray have had many conversations and panel discussions about women who've made a tremendous impact on culture. And in one of our efforts, we created sweatshirts with some of those women's names to spark even more conversations with our colleagues. A few of our friends here submitted names of women who inspire them, women from within Gray's walls and out in the world at large. And here to discuss these trailblazers with us are Dan Ng, Chief Strategy Officer at our New York office, talking with us about Shirley Young, Lydia Casada, Director of Business Development, discussing a distant relative of hers, Jane Swisshelm, Julian Castillo, Senior Writer, talking about Chavela Vargas, Adrian Hopkins, SVP Internal Culture and Communications, telling us about the legacy of Maggie Lena Walker. And I will be wrapping us up with Florence W. Golden. I am beyond thrilled to be kicking things off with Dan Ng. Welcome, Dan, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Of course. So, Dan, who is the woman that inspired you and what is her story? Shirley Young is my hidden pioneer for Women's History Month. I learned about Shirley Young just from being here at Gray because if you hadn't ever encountered her, she is like a legend here at Gray, but also across our industry as an advertising research pioneer. Amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about her story and what was so powerful? Well, let's, let's rewind a little bit because Shirley Young, her story starts as the daughter of a Chinese diplomat. And during the unrest of those early years of the 20th century, we're talking like, I think, 1930s, her dad as a Chinese diplomat was actually executed by Japanese forces there. So a really rough start to the story. But her mother was intent on coming to America. They made it out here. She got remarried. They had their family make their way through the American educational system. And by the time she was done, she was Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Wellesley College. And she, I guess, growing up, didn't have any inkling that there was going to be any problem coming out. But once she got to the, the workforce, everyone just didn't have time for her. I mean, it was one of those moments where she had just come through life with her degree in economics and everyone just figured she was going to be a secretary. And that was going to be as far as she went. So after looking for a while, you know, for something in politics or international diplomacy, as a young Asian woman who wasn't even a citizen of the U.S. at that point, she took a market research job. And that was an, apparently an acceptable position at the time. But it came quite clear you know, to her employers that this was not just anybody here to take some notes. It was somebody who had a real knack for getting to the truth of things in market research. Over time, you know, she bounced through a couple of agencies and ended up at a client of Gray's. And when Gray took on the account, Shirley Young moved into the agency world. It was 
like a magical moment. Because it turned out she invented all of these bits of understanding that we still use today. Market target buying incentive studies. If you've ever heard of MTBIs, she invented that. Even the idea that brands have an emotional content. In other words, people react to brands emotionally and that can affect buying behavior. Just that concept was something that Shirley pioneered. So it's like, it was like a magical moment where, you know, someone who, you know, came up not knowing anything about limitations, you know, met the business world. And it happened to be in the market research department at Gray that happened. Um, from there, she, she thought that, you know, she eventually would take on the top spot in the department, you know, head of research. And it didn't quite go that way. She herself started a family. And at that time, generally, when you became pregnant, you didn't get maternity leave. You just were, you know, given termination papers. And Gray, you know, it was interesting. They thought, well, is this actually how it's going to end? This person is literally like the inventor of everything we do in research. It's, it's everything that we understand about advertising and how it works comes from Shirley. How can we lose her? And so, you know, they worked it out at first on a part-time basis, but I think within a year, she was the head of the department. And for another 13 years... Surely led our research. And so you sort of talk about, you know, hidden figures inside of our industry whose stories haven't been told. I feel Shirley's is one of them, you know, as a woman executive, as an Asian American, you know, as a, a mother who pioneered maternity leave. She has so much for us to, you know, to learn from. You know, her story is one of those things where you, you, you just look at it. Well, how, how could it ever have been different, you know, for someone as talented as Shirley? After Gray, it was worth saying that one of our clients, GM, stole her from us and she rose very quickly within GM, she, you know, she, she did market research for them, helped them figure out how to sell Buick. But then on her own initiative, said, well, you know, you should really sell Buick in China. And so she was you know, amongst the first executives that GM sent to China to open up that market, building Buick factories, doing partnerships with Chinese companies there. And I think she spent another decade plus out there working that out. And in that time, you know, she's a real leader in cultural cooperation. So bringing classical music artists from China, you know, to tour in the US where she ended up retiring, you know, names like Lang Lang, you surely really well. Um, so in, in the end, you know, all the things that she's going to be remembered for between like, you know, so the cultural cooperation between China and the US and and just being a trailblazer through our industry, you know, for, for me, it's it's the fact that she knew, knew no fear. She knew no limits. She didn't even know that there were limits. She just figured that she was going to take her talent and just invent and push things until they were to her satisfaction. And with all that, you know, she ended up blazing a trail for many of us. But I think particularly, you know, celebrating her on Women's History Month, you know, she was first and foremost someone who, who said no to, you know, to gender bias and She'll always be remembered, at least for me from now. Uh, she'll always be remembered for that. Wow. So that's Shirley's story. Crazy. Crazy. No, I'm blown away. And I really appreciate you sharing her story because there's so much to learn there. You know, obviously, you just said about the knowing no fear, no limits. I think, you know, we sometimes take for granted. I mean, the fact that she was one of the first to even create like having maternity leave, you know, something that's we still have ongoing discussions about around the details of it. But to just know that that didn't exist and to still say yes to yourself and be able to push for that is beyond what I could even imagine. And all of her obviously professional achievements, being able to carve a place out for herself and really demonstrate her talent and her leadership abilities. It's just, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around being able to do that as the only one in the room and not having a precedent and being the one to do that is remarkable. So it's, it's so important to learn from and continue to be inspired by women who are able to do that and really be fearless. 
I appreciate Shirley's story beyond words. And I have a question for you, then a follow-up question. If Shirley was alive today, what do you think her motto would be? What would she say to the young women working in advertising or just in general? Stick with the truth and you'll go far. She stood for, beyond anything else, she stood for the application of data to creative problems. As a predecessor of our current offering here at Gray, she believed that if you had the right data, you could, you could find inspiration. You could find insight and inspiration if you knew the truth. And, you know, for her, you know, to have been part of our heritage means a lot. You know, our, our data practice, and it's, you know, a pretty, a pretty strong practice now, comes directly from the underlying values that she laid for us. That, um, you know, the truth is not something to obscure when it comes to advertising marketing. The truth is what will set you free. And she really was at the heart of that. All those years ago in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, she laid that groundwork for us. What drew you to talk about this person? Why was she important to you personally? Well, you know, Shirley, you know, being an Asian American executive back in the 50s and 60s was already visible and a great model for others who are coming up. I think for me, taking on this role, you know, a, a good chunk of it's just knowing that my visibility will inspire others to come up in the industry. Um, and she did it for us, you know, back in the 60s. So, it's meaningful every day to think about Shirley walking the halls of, of this company. Thank you so, so much. This was really powerful. Up next, we have Lydia. So wonderful to have you here with us. Would love to know, who is the woman that inspired you and what is her story? Sure. I'm happy to be here and thanks for having me. So my woman is Jane Swisshelm, and she actually is my grandma's great, great aunt. So technically blood related, which is amazing. And I wanted to tell her story. I was so excited that I was reached out to to get to wear her name proudly around the halls of gray. And she actually was an early feminist and abolitionist in the mid 1800s. And she fought for the freeing of slaves in actually free states at the time. There were a lot of people that were breaking the law and still owned slaves in the Southern states. So she created a lot of publications to help put that news out there into the world and also put a lot of the people who were doing it, their names specifically in the newspapers and put them on blast essentially, which was amazing. And we were laughing about it as we were talking about her. She was an early cancel culture kind of lady. So an incredible woman. She fought for women's rights as well as, you know, the freeing of, of slaves and, and an abolitionist, early abolitionist. So yeah, that's that's Jane. And I'm proud to to talk about her today. Wow. Yeah, my my family is is very proud. I, I have was raised by very strong women. And I think that just goes to show that thank you to Jane for setting the the example. Thank you for sharing Jane's story. She really does sound incredible. I have one last question for you, you know, especially considering everything you said about obviously it was difficult times and unfortunately it still is somewhat difficult times, not the same. But, you know, the challenges that people face today to speak up for what's right. What advice do you think Jane would give women of this generation? I think that's, wow, that's a very interesting question. You know, the media back in her day and age, that was her publication and all the publications she worked for. And that was how she got her word out to, to the public and to the masses. I think, you know, the modern day version of that through social media and the fact that she was lucky enough to 
have access to these publications and people gave her the chance to, you know, actually print newspapers. There were, you know, multiple people in Pittsburgh and Minnesota that hired her and allowed her to share her passions and her voice. We have the opportunity here. We have social media where we all have a voice now. We can post on all these different forums, whether it's TikTok, whether it's Facebook, Instagram. We have the opportunity to share the struggles of women to the world, to our immediate connections and and those beyond. And I think that's really, really powerful. Using that voice and using the, the channels and mediums that we have so readily available is so important. And I think we should all be encouraged to do that. Amen to that. I'm silently cheering here as you're saying every single word. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> thank you so much, Lydia. Thank you for sharing Jane's story and thank you for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. Up next, we have Julian. Julian, welcome. So wonderful to have you here with us. Would love it if you could please share who is the woman that inspired you and what is her story? Yeah, the woman who inspires me and who I think doesn't get enough credit is probably Chavela Vargas. She is a Mexican folk singer, sort of Mexican icon. She's actually from Costa Rica, but moved to Mexico in her teenage years and spent the next 80 years there. And yeah, she's really famous for one, singing these, it's called a ranchera style music which is usually sung by men with mariachis and it's, you know, men singing to their their lovers, their scorn lovers. And she did it without changing the genders of the songs, which was like a really big deal at the time, especially in like Mexican culture. And in addition to that, she presents very masculine. She dressed, she wore like suits and was like ostracized, like her, her young life growing up. But When she sort of started to find success in the, I think it was like the 50s and the 60s, she was sort of a pioneer in this space and became somewhat of a queer icon as a result and was a contemporary of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera and was like really huge in that whole art moment in Mexico. And yeah, just achieved so much acclaim and so much success. But then unfortunately, she had struggles with alcoholism, took decades off of her career and sort of stopped touring, stopped recording and took a bit of a hiatus until much later in life. She came back around, I think, the late 90s and again became just instantly, it's like the world missed her, the music missed her. She ended up receiving a Lifetime Grammy, touring, I think she played at Carnegie Hall She's just, um, yeah, just an incredible woman and musician. And yeah, actually didn't come out officially until well into her 80s. She just has an incredible story. Cabela sounds pretty awesome. And I'm curious, what is it exactly that drew you to talk about Chavela and why is she inspiring to you? Growing up, I heard about Chavela through a bunch of other friends growing up in San Antonio, a very Mexican-American community. And I think she's... An inspiration to me because musically, I'm a just a huge fan of her. I'm a big musician. I love all sorts of different types of music. And the way that she approached the music, but also the way that she stayed true to it and to herself, she sort of put her own spin on it. Usually it's sung, you know, like I said, it's like a male singer with mariachis behind them. And she sort of stripped it away to the bones and it's just her and her guitar. And musically, I think I was a fan of her before I knew anything about her story. And then as I learned more and more about her story and 
the influence that she's had on the region that I grew up in and the music that I grew up with and continues to have. Like I said, I didn't know about that story until just a few years ago, even. That just makes her already powerful music just that much better, knowing that story and everything that she had to overcome to get to it. Wow. No, that's so beautiful. I'm sure there's something really special that's added to the music. You know, obviously, a lot of musicians, their craft is really perfected and it's something, you know, unique to listen to. But when you hear about what someone really did within the community and basically was able to accomplish personally, it makes it that much more impactful. And, and the craft is, it's, it's more than the craft, really. What advice do you think Shavella would give women and maybe young people of this generation, artists, etc.? I think that it would have to be something to the effect of stay true to yourself, whatever that might mean, whoever that might be, and to not be afraid because, yeah, like you said, like music isn't isn't just the craft, but it's all the experiences that go into the musician. And I think really embracing those and learning from those and never losing sight of not only who you are, but who you want to be, I guess. Thank you so much, Julian. Awesome. Thank you. Up next, we have Adrian. Adrian, welcome. So good to have you here with us. We'd love it if you could please share with us. Who is the woman that inspired you and what is her story? Sure. I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about Maggie Lena Walker. I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and Maggie Walker is very much a hometown hero to many of us back home. She is the first African-American woman to charter a bank and also the first African-American woman to serve as a bank president. She founded a bank in 1903, which is a pretty remarkable time for any woman to do anything this significant in a period like that. So she's just been someone who has been deeply inspirational to me for as long as I've known about her, which was as a kid for the first time. Wow, that's incredible. I know I can't even imagine, like I try to put my head on and think like if you were living in those times, what it must have taken, like personal strength and motivation to do that. That is just mind blowing. So how did you find out about her? I'm curious, like what was like, what was that like, you know, learning about her from a young age? How did she kind of come into your life? The best way to put it is that I got as much education outside of school as I got in school and growing up in Richmond, which has a deep historical significance being, of course, the former capital of the Confederacy. It's a legendary city for contributions throughout Black history as well. My church was a place where I learned a lot about Black history. And it wasn't because, you know, my schools were refusing to teach it. It's just that they wanted to make sure that people understood the legendary Black icons who were from the area or just other, you know, other Black icons just throughout American history so that people had a real knowledge of self. And so it was just natural for me to learn about people like Maggie Walker and Frederick Douglass and so many others who are known in, in, in the larger discussion about Black history. But these people, especially because they were in Richmond, they felt very accessible because we could walk past the house that she grew up in, or we could walk past the building that occupied the bank. What's unique about Maggie Walker's institution that she founded was, I think it was the St. Luke's Penny Savings Bank. She was able to merge that with a bank that was still active when I was growing up, the Consolidated Bank and Trust. So it felt 
much more alive than most history does, which feels like it's sometimes, you know, just on the dusty shelf. Yeah, wow. I I mean, I can imagine that being able to visit that bank would be a fascinating... Do they have anything on her there? You know, obviously it was merged then, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, so what they've done in Richmond, they have created... They've, they've named schools after her. They have national park sites in Richmond that, that are dedicated to her. So again, it's like pretty remarkable that through the contributions that she made in history, that it still would be as cherished and preserved as it is today. I'm so happy to hear that, though, as it should be. I mean, what a remarkable woman. And just being able to do that at the times, really, it's it's she paved the way then for many. It makes me feel like I need to take a trip then to Richmond. Yeah, I'm really proud. I'm really proud of the way that Richmond has preserved um, history in this way. And I was a history major in college, too, so I think it's probably owed to the fact that I grew up with such a, re- a reverence for things and people that had, that had come before me. Adrian, if you could have dinner with her, what would you ask her? I'm going to answer this in two different ways. But the first one that comes to mind, because we're literally talking about banks in 2023, it would be like, how's the bank doing? <laughs> but I think a more interesting question that I would ask for her is if she was proud of the legacy that she had, in creating, you know, Black-owned financial institutions because there aren't that many that still exist now, you know, 120 years later. And that's due to so many different factors. There's just been like a massive consolidation in the banking industry, period. But in general, you know, Black economic status is still very much towards the bottom. And we, we still struggle to have institutions that are completely focused on Black financial empowerment. So I would ask her, you know, just how she feels about the legacy that she left behind and whether she felt like there are ways to carry the mantle forward. And I think even probably in the extended financial industry, you know, because now the conversation, a lot of it is around whether it's crypto or different VCs and things. And people talk about that a lot in getting more women, getting more Black women into the industry. So it, it definitely, I feel like she could probably give some really good inspirational advice At Gray New York, many of our employees were proudly wearing some branded Women's History Month swag around. So Adrian, can you tell us what was the sweatshirt? Absolutely. So I was wearing a sweatshirt that was a tribute to Maggie Walker, a a dear friend of mine. Cliff Chambliss is an artist and He's also from Richmond. And so of the similar, you know, reverence of the of the folklore, he created this sweatshirt that just said Maggie's Folk. So it didn't have Maggie Walker's name on it. And Denise O'Blinis, who is a creative director here at Great New York, just stopped and asked me, who is Maggie and who is Maggie's Folk? And so I just described her story and gave a little bit of the background about about the project that, that Cliff had created. And the conversation, Denise and I talked about, well, what if we ask other people to share the names of women whose stories aren't as well known and put them on a sweatshirt, put their names on a sweatshirt so that people who saw it would be prompted to ask, who is Florence Golden? Who is Sister Rosetta Tharp? And over a couple of weeks, we got, you know, about a dozen submissions and we turned those around. We wanted to make sure that they landed in Women's History Month. And we had events going on here at the agency that would have people wearing them and, and you know, we were already socializing. So it was a natural, as a natural fit. And it was really amazing to be in the town hall space and watching people milling around in these sweatshirts and people were genuinely organically asking questions about who these women are. And I think it's going to give us some inspiration for future ways that we'll, we'll do this for other heritage months or just other celebrations just around unheralded history makers. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. I have to say that I think it worked out well. I was one of the lucky ones who got to wear a sweatshirt and I'm 
going to speak on Florence a little bit later. But definitely, I had people asking me the whole day. And honestly, even if I wasn't prompted, I felt proud wearing it. I kind of prompted others. I was like, hey, you see my sweatshirt? <laughs> Ask me about. <laughs> and I will be wearing that sweatshirt around town. It was pretty... And that's what it's for. (laughs) When now when people, so throughout my career, people, because I was a history major, people asked, you know, well, what did you do with a history degree that, you know, that's relevant to what you knew now? And it's, if this is a living example of that, because history is not just for people who, you know, want to be professors, you know, history is alive and well all around us. And so I love being at a place like Gray, New York, where creativity is in the air, all of Gray, you know, frankly, but, you know, being here, creativity is very much in the air where a conversation between people can just turn into something that has a, a magnified impact on so many more. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, my pleasure. So it is my pleasure to discuss a woman who really inspires me, Florence Golden, who was the very first official creative and copywriter hired at Gray. Mrs. Golden was a New York native like myself. She was hired in either 1926, 1928, somewhere around that time. Saw different records there. A time when women's occupational choices were severely circumscribed and educational opportunities were very much constrained. Women obviously were often relegated to secretarial jobs. They weren't often seen as active participants to some of the other kinds of disciplines such as copywriting, art direction, and all those different parts of advertising. And Mrs. Golden was also Jewish. And at the time, American Jews faced educational quotas, restrictions from residential and recreational communities, and continued acts of outright physical violence. It was considered pretty mainstream that universities, clubs, and other associations denied membership to Jews. None of this stopped Mrs. Golden. Lawrence was obviously quite the badass. She was not only the first creative at Gray. So imagine again, at a time where women and Jews as well weren't as included in these industries, but she went on to lead its women's product division and eventually assumed the role of vice president. She worked at Gray for more than 25 years, quite a while to be at an ad agency. Mrs. Golden also led in a variety of positions in the creative industry. She was president of the fashion group in 1954 and of the advertising women of New York in 1961 and 62. And in 1963, she was named National Advertising Woman of the Year by the American Advertising Federation. So she really went on to a fascinating and prestigious career in advertising. I think that's quite incredible. Again, considering the times and what she was working against, I find that incredibly inspiring and incredibly inspiring that it was at Gray where we worked. So pretty, pretty awesome. That is really cool, SD. Florence sounds like maybe she was the inspiration for Peggy on Mad Men coming in from a copywriter standpoint. If you had to imagine Florence today being the ECD on a brand, what kind of brand Ooh, would you, you imagine know what? I'd she love would be to running? I think that she would be running any kind of brand. I do think it was fascinating that she ended up leading the women's product division. I wonder if at the time, you know, that felt like a more suitable role for her or if it was considered even more outlandish to put her on something where it wasn't female focused. So I would love to know that in today's, you know, maybe that was what she enjoyed, but I would hope that, you know, in today's day and age or, you know, she could work on really anything she she chose and whatever discipline, whatever vertical, you know, because again, I'm sure she 
grew and, you know, really led in that particular women's division. But, you know, she's just at the end of the day, a copywriter and a leader, and she should be able to work on whatever kind of uh, work she wants. What do you think she would say to young creatives today in 2023? She would say, be proud of who you are and lead with your own personal style and go for it. I think, you know, unfortunately, I I was saying this earlier, I think, you know, it's still difficult times to sometimes be who you are. And whatever factor it is, I think feeling included and feeling like you have a voice can be incredibly difficult. And I find it to be very important to, first of all, for myself, just be proud of my identity and all forms of it. And to also actively create space for other people too. Because I think, you know, again, unfortunately, even today, you can see a lot of bias play a role, you know, just the industry and past the industry. So I think she would say, be who you are, be proud of who you are, create space for others and just go after what you want. If you want to be something, just keep going, keep going and and find your dream and make it happen for yourself and help others along the way. I absolutely love that advice. And thank you so, so much for hosting this conversation today. All right. Well, that does it for us. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, or just send us a thing you want us to discuss, or maybe some other social topic you want us to get into here on The Five Things. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcast at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank our guests today, Dan, Julian, Lydia, and Adrian. And of course our fabulous guest host, Esty. And as always, thanks to Samantha Geller, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes for making us sound great. And this week, we would like to give a very special shout out and thank you to the wonderful Denise Oblenis for coming to us with this idea for the sweatshirts and the podcast. Denise, thank you and thank your creative mind. Recently, Gray launched its fourth season of our Webby award-winning podcast, Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas. On the next episode, I had a wonderful conversation with the founders of the SLUMU Institute, Karen Rabinovitz and Sarah Schiller, about their journey and what they learned while building a place for play. It's a fun deep dive into the world of slime. If you're a creative mind, you'll enjoy this episode for sure. And you can follow and listen wherever you are listening to this podcast. That's Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas. Well, that does it for us, listener. Thank you. And as always, please be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin, with post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. <laughs>